Hi everyone, this is Jeff Epstein and this is my podcast, People Conversations. So you soundcloud.com slash people conversations and uh, today I am talking with a fellow Bernie Sanders delegate. Uh, we were together quite a lot during the convention, the Democratic National Convention, uh, a few months ago, 2016, and uh, he is uh, very knowledgeable in economics and trade uh, and said a lot of interesting stuff during the DNC which at the time I must admit I did not pay as much attention to as now I am interested in knowing. Um, I just read a book uh, about free trade it's called Bad Samaritans by Ha Jun Chang J-O-O-N uh, Chang uh, Bad Samaritans the myth of free trade and the secret history of capitalism and so I asked him if we could meet and he could you know, give me some of his insights on to to learn this stuff a little bit better. So, <clears throat> hello, Wayne. It is it is good to see you again after yeah, a few three, months two, three months since the convention. <clears throat> so, um, why don't you just why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, say briefly, you know, how you ended up at the convention and just like a little bit of your experience there, and, and then I'll we'll talk uh, a little bit more. Wayne Lewis uh, from South Jersey. I met Jeff. Uh, Jeff, we were both delegates for Bernie Sanders at the convention this year. Um, I guess I got in, I got involved just because I thought, um, while I don't necessarily agree that uh, socialism is any kind of a long-term solution um, for the short term in terms of transitions to the types of things that we're going to need to do over the next. 40 to 50 years as a society to um, to overcome the interrelated suite of problems that are facing human beings on our planet in terms of climate change, severe inequality, ecosystem overload, and um, poverty. And in in order to to get over this suite of problems uh, in a way that's progressive and not regressive, um, we need to avoid things that are super aggressive like violent revolutions and uh, very destructive wars. Um, so that, so in the transition period, we're going to need to keep the lights on. We need to make sure that people still have food, that you know our, our country still runs. And you know people like Bernie Sanders and, and people like Elizabeth Warren uh, were at least uh, receptive to ideas that will help to make the distribution of wealth a little more equitable for most, um, will keep us out of frivolous wars that only help uh, defense contractors, which I don't know why they call it defense, it really should be called, called offense. Anyway, um, the United States has never been in a defensive war. Uh, anyway, um, so that's how I got involved with like the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. Um, I'm going to link to some of the uh, interviews that I've already done with you, um, with a bunch of people, but you are a big part of them. Um, the morning we met Kareth. Yeah, Kareth, some stuff. Kareth from uh, Western PA. Kareth District 5, yeah. Right. And uh, so I'm going to link to some of, some of that stuff, but what is your what is your background? You're, you're trained in some of uh, well, trained in. So uh, I have, my undergrad was in biochem, biophysics. I have grad degrees in uh, molecular biology and pure mathematics. I taught mathematics at Penn State for a number of years. Um, right now, last 10 years or so, I'm just a professional poker player. But 
gives me a lot of free time to read, think, write. And you were pretty close to Atlantic City. Yeah, I, I, my wife works at Brigada. Oh. That's where I play, mostly. Oh, really? Um, could I have another glass with sure. water with ice? Sure. Thanks. Actually, if you maybe bring us a little picture. Sure. Um, okay, so you, so you live 20 minutes from the casino? Yeah, 50, yeah 15, <laughs> 20 minutes. And uh, Bernie Sanders was your introduction to politics. I remember so, you said something to the yeah, effect of... Yeah, so I, I've never really been involved in politics before Bernie Sanders. I've been involved in, in more academic things. Um, and really, the about four or five years ago, I, after a period where I kind of got myself not so involved, like I, I wasn't really thinking about real-world issues much, uh, other, than, other than as they impacted my own personal life. Um, and then... Uh, Something that I noticed in college just started to really come back and hit me uh, about how bad things were for most people and what I thought was unsustainable. Uh, and then I started to really look into the climate issue, uh, really look into the income and wealth inequality issue, uh, look into ecosystem overload. So, um, so what are your what are your qualifications as far as economics and trade? I just just uh, well, study so, you study so, them. So, uh, well, so I think I'm a systems thinker, so I think about nonlinear dynamic systems. These are almost every system that you're familiar with in the real world. Uh, there are exceptions, but the vast majority are nonlinear dynamic systems. They're all inter uh, so they're systems that have multiple connections. They have network structures. Um, the properties of these systems uh, don't matter so much, or, or they aren't controlled so much by what the individual players are in the network. It's more about the patterns, uh, the logical pattern of connections uh, between the individual players in the network. So the type of dynamics that you see in ecosystems uh, or in gene regulation networks or in organ systems can be very similar to the types of dynamics you see in societies, uh, economies, and you know, it, internet networks. Um, so a lot of these these systems have, in terms of their coarse grain behavior, they have very similar patterns of behaviors. And this this reminds me of, and I think that this is related to how Bernie Sanders' stump speech and his whole platform. Everything is related to everything else. Where Hillary Clinton often talks and a lot of random decent things yes. that are not necessarily connected, but Bernie Sanders' entire stump speech of all of these things are very interrelated. Every single item is related to to many other items, and if you take one piece out, then you know. Yeah. Uh, so two things. First of all, I, I thought that's why Bernie was so successful, and that's why he had. He really, like, if you were honest about it, you would have to say he really won every debate. And the reason is that he won, won, every, he debate. won every debate is because Bernie Sanders' narrative is cohesive and internally self-consistent. And it is because he, even though he's not a deep systems thinker, he is to a certain extent a systems thinker, and he understands the interrelatedness of these problems. Um, yeah, I think he found that balance of how deep to go yes. for the American public to really grasp yes, it. Yes, as a matter of without fact. Without going too deep. Yes, you're, you, he, I, he certainly understands more than he says. And, um, yeah, you're right. Uh, I think a lot of, I think he really did find the right balance. 
it's unfortunate what, what happened. Anyway. Um, whereas Hillary Clinton, um, you know, she's very well schooled. She educates herself on any issue that comes up. And, you know, she formulates an opinion that she thinks is going to be expedient um, based on a lot of, I'm going to use, say the word fact with quotation marks, but at least it's, it's what the people she talks to, the information they get across to her. Um, the problem is uh, her, her ideas, they don't fit together in any kind of framework. They sort of, you know, they're very reductionist, just like most of our scientific community still. Uh, most of our uh, reductionists. So, okay, so uh, it was a little too loud over there, so we, we moved over here. Um, okay, so I was explaining well, what reductionism is, I guess, like we're talking about Hillary Clinton. Yeah, briefly reduction, and then I would like to try and get to the more stuff. Uh, directly in the book. So, so yeah, reductionism, please. Uh, yeah, so anyway, so, re so what reductionism is, is uh, it's taking a complex interrelated uh, system of interrelated interacting parts uh, and trying to break it up into pieces and, you know, understand what the pieces do, and then from that, try to get some understanding into how the big system behaves. So this is like in biology. You so starting with the trees and trying to work away to the forest. Well, even deeper than No, even trees are far too complicated. So they'll start with the individual cells of the trees and what the chemicals do in like a test tube and they'll go from that and try to figure out what a tree is. The, the problem is that all these systems, all these uh, complex nonlinear systems, so when you talk about the holistic approach, at critical scales of complexity, Every time you're, you, ha you have a, a network that gets complex enough, what you get are these, what are called emergent properties. So you have new properties that are properties of the system that couldn't have been predicted by looking at the individual parts, and they're not properties of a slightly smaller system that, has, that doesn't have sufficient complexity. Um, so very simple example of how this works. You can imagine dropping grains of sand one at a time onto the ground. Eventually it starts to form a pile. At a certain point, um, you know, so so, you, so for a long time all you have is just a bunch of grains of sand and they're starting to stack on top of each other. You can imagine at a certain point, and you can actually do these experiments in a laboratory, um, all the grains of sand are kind of lying at a critical angle, uh, you know, kind of just balanced against gravity in a poised state. And as you drop additional grains of sand uh, from that point one at a time, what you see is that you can observe landslides of any size. So every grain of sand that drops, you, it could just be a one grain landslide to the entire pile falling over. The distribution, and this is where you, you get into this uh, fractal geometry stuff, which is uh, the work of Mendelbrot has been extended for a long time now, and this is pervasive in all these modern systems. But what you get, <coughs> you get, it, you get a, a distribution of landslides that is uh, the frequency of the landslide you see uh, follows a power law according to the size of the landslide. Uh, but these are this is an example of a fat tail distribution. Um, the really rare events are not nearly as rare as they would be in normal distribution situations. Um, so, and they're also very large impact. So, saying that you can just safely ignore these large scale. Um, these large-scale outliers as you could in a normal distribution system 
it, it isn't true. It's very short-sighted, and it opens you up to catastrophes. But the point I'm trying to make here about systemic properties is that these landslide distributions, and even landslides themselves, are meaningless if you're thinking about individual grains of sand. These concepts only have meaning when you're thinking about a sand pile, an entire sand pile. So the sand pile has emergent properties. It now it has global properties that can't be described simply in terms of a grain of sand. So Hillary Clinton dives into the grain of sand. Yeah. And Bernie so, Sanders sort of touches on them, but yeah, so, sort of not goes, doesn't so, go as deep. So Hillary Clinton goes too deep to the fault. She, she, she nitpicks on every little topic. She gets a topic. She reads thousands of pages on this specific topic by experts, in quotation marks, who focus on this topic. And but the problem is that these experts are all looking at these tiny minutiae. Uh, so uh, it, it, you're saying you're saying that that Bernie Sanders is more balanced as far as focusing on the minutia. His but, view is but more without losing the focus of the entire picture. Yeah, his his view is more holistic. He's more holistic. So you do need there. You know, you certainly need the minutia is helpful in certain situations. It's certainly when you're engineering things locally or on a small scale. Um, but to not include in your thinking or really let your thinking be dominated by the fact. Or at least well cognizant of the fact that all these, all these things are interrelated, and once you start to focus on this one little microscopic area, you're throwing away most of the important information. Okay. Um, all right. So, so let me change subjects a little bit to to the book. Right, so, so the book is about basically the the myth of free trade, as far as benefiting all people when. At the uh, when at the end of the book, it's clear that free trade is just a tool of making rich people richer, and to exacerbate to exacerbating inequality, and to to kicking away the ladder to developing countries, in with the myth of having a level playing field, but that level playing field. Is the, the playing field could be level, but if you play 11-year-old girls against professional football players, then obviously the same rules don't apply, and just a lot of this is so. This is this is a <coughs> so this is a very deep issue. Um, first of all, and, it, and actually, I think of it as as a lot of related to parenting, where you protect your children until they're ready to face the world, but the myth of free trade is like you know you have a, a grown child across the street, and you pit that. You pit the, your your ch your young child against this grown person, as if you know they're just supposed to magically. Yeah, it's, it's, it's and, and that's not even what's going on. So what's going on? So this whole suite of economics, neoclassical economics, these free trade, uh, free trade with quotation marks initiatives, the um, what's being done by the World Bank and IMF. In terms of how they give their aid to these other countries, right? And those three organizations is the other part. Yeah, the Brentwood IMF, the IMF, WTO, WTO, and, and the World Bank. Bank. Yeah, they're Brentwood. But anyway, they're the machinery of neoliberalism. So, what these free trade free trade deals are really about um, is they're they're about colonialism. So, hundreds of years ago, colonialism was um, was done via warships. You know. Define colonialism. So colonial, colonial, colonialism is the act of uh, 
conquest of underdeveloped nations and islands of indigenous people uh, to extract their resources and turn them into essentially slaves. Whether they're truly slaves, like what happened in Africa, or just sort of wage slaves working, well, yeah, and, and later the United States and the Caribbean, um, or whether they're wage slaves working for, you know, even below subsistence wages, um, the situation is more or less the same. But the, the other side is also to create customers for the wealthy nation's products well, and services. I'll, I'll, get to, I'll, I'll get to that in, in, in a second. Um, it's hard to, to do this without talking about modern monetary theory. Um, so anyway, so when I say they're neocolonialists, so, so what's been done um, by the Bretton Woods organizations and... By the what? The, the World Bank, the WTO. And, and, you know, they're the ones who kind of are the instruments, like, where originally it was warships that were used for colonialism, now it's like these organizations. Um, and what they do is they uh, their conquest is financial. So if you're... They make them desperate for aid. Well, okay. And they say, we'll give you aid, but you have to agree to all these things that really yeah. give us incredible advantage. And the reason that the aid that's given uh, ends up turning them into colonies is because they don't have their own strong sovereign currency. So, strong sovereign currency. Sovereign. So if you're the United States, or you're the UK, or you're China, or Japan, and you print your own money through your central bank, um, you can never, there's never something that you can't afford in terms of your own national currency. So this this myth that, and at one time it was a useful myth really, that your tax dollars pay for government spending is just that, it's a myth. Um, the government spends by keystrokes. There's no mechanism by which the government takes your tax dollars and then spends them. Um, so if you look at the work of Stephanie Kelton, who was uh, Bernie Sanders' chief economic advisor, or her mentor, Randall Ray, at uh, University of Kansas, Missouri. Um, they're uh, the leaders in uh, a field called modern monetary theory um, that kind of describes what money really is and how uh, the, the relationship between government spending, um, government deficit, uh, private sector deficit, and international deficit and surplus, and how the, those three have to add up. So whenever the government is spending in deficit, it means that the private sector has a surplus in terms of wealth. Um, so this idea that you have to always have the, the budget balanced, which is under, it's understandable because if you look at any smaller scale, if you, if you look at a household, if you look at a state, you know, if you look at a business, if you don't have your budget balance and you consistently run a deficit, you get strangled by debt. Yeah, there, there was a part in the book which I don't recall, and obviously my my views overall are pretty simplistic at the moment but budget but forcing a balanced budget is incredibly restricting to developing yes. nations and yeah not to not to wealthy nations but to developing nations need much more flexibility than being forced to have a balanced budget yeah. so so getting back to the getting back to neocolon, uh, the neocolonialism so this is about modern monetary theory there's some great sources for this as a matter of fact if you want to understand it Go to neweconomicperspectives.com or .org, I'm not sure. New Economic Perspectives. There's, a, among other things, there's, there's, a, uh, there's an MMT primer, which is a series of about 50 short articles. 
uh, or blog posts that explain what modern monetary theory is, how it works, how it relates to first world nations, how it relates to developing nations, how it relates to the crisis in Europe, how it relates to our finance economy. Um, and it's, a, it's an interesting read. It'll take you, if you read one or two posts a, uh, a day, it'll take you a month or two uh, to read and understand it. But it's really worth understanding because um, modern monetary theory can, can be a great tool for government policy. So what it allows you to do is do the things that you really need to do for your, for your government to ensure things like nearly full employment and that your economy is running well. Uh, whereas if you artificially restrict, restrict yourself with these uh, budget ceilings, um, you greatly restrict the leeway you have in policy spending. And it's partially, and it's partially artificial it's, as well because money only exists because government says that money yes. exists because we're not on gold standards anymore. Well, even when we were on gold standards, it actually goes back deeper than that. So the root of all this, has all these uh, fiat currencies, uh, have to do with the, the only reason they have any real value goes back to taxation. So then this goes back to the, the days of the kings. You know, they were able to, you know, put out these sovereign currencies because they demanded taxes be paid in these currencies. So if you're the government and you demand taxes paid in these IOUs, which are your currency, um, there's a high demand for people and businesses to get a hold of these so they can pay their taxes. If you can't, if you can't effectively levy taxes and fees and you don't have the muscle to do it, uh, your currency isn't really worth much. Uh, and if you read the if you read new economic perspectives, the stuff is is explained really well. We don't really have time for that. Uh, but getting back to the colonialism aspect, um, all these other nations, their currencies are either uh, they either don't have strong internal currencies, or their currencies are pegged to foreign currencies like dollars or euros. Um, so when when uh, the IMF or whoever come and give aid to one of these countries, um, they give them aid by loaning them money in terms of euros or dollars or something like that, and the country has to come up with euros or dollars to pay back and service the debt. Uh, these debts are usually at pretty high rates because the, the countries are con considered to be you know, high default risk. So um, they find themselves very quickly saddled with debt. And it's debt and that vulnerable to, well, to yes. future restrictions. Yes. And the debt is and since the debt is payable in dollars, say, um, they're forced to find ways to come up with dollars to service their debt. The way they have and to do that is by well, if you can't well, pay us back money, then you're going to have to. We're going to have to. You're going to have to sell sell off your resources. Or agree to I'll, these. Allow us to build these factories here. Allow us to take your resources and ship them out. You know, allow us to have sign this trade agreement. Yeah. So, so all these, you know, so we, we force them to put themselves in a situation where their country is no longer theirs; it's ours. And this has even happened in Europe with with Greece, Spain, Ireland. I'm um, not really because the uh, of because the European Common Market adopted this uh, Euro central government, which is really kind of run by bankers, and they adopted um, a common currency. When aid is given to a country like Spain or Italy um, or Ireland, they have this debt that is now unserviceable because they don't print euros. If if Greece still had their own currency, is this still? Yeah, if Greece still had their own currency, you know, they could 
they could run a deficit as needed to make sure that things in their country were taken care of. Um, um, so getting so uh, what these free trade agreements really are about is colonialism. They're about turning countries into colonies. And I have a I have real bad news on this respect. Um, the one you know one of the uh, tenets of neoliberalism is building uh, all these monopolies or oligopolies in each 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 little sector. Each little sector of the, of the world economy is controlled by smaller and smaller uh, groups of transnational companies that don't have any real. Uh, they don't. They aren't really a part of any particular nation state, and they don't have any real alliances to any particular nation state. They're just these entities 